Welcome, everyone interested in this ancient text called the Bible, written thousands of years ago, and yet they say it's supposed to mean something to us today. In order to try and figure out what it means to us today, we're going to try and understand what it meant to them back then. I'm your host, Jonathan the Dumb Christian, and we're going to explore two chapters today in Genesis 13 and 14. There is a lot of story that's happening, so be sure to read it for yourself. God said it the way he wants to say it. He'll always say it better than I can say it. I'm just a dumb Christian trying to wrap my head around it. But Genesis chapters 13 and 14 are so closely connected. It's one story of some things that are connected that are happening. So we got to do it all together. So please bear with me and keep up if you can. The Bible's about to get real. We might get a little bit colorful. So buckle up and welcome to Dumb Christian. Last time we left off in Genesis, Abram, Sarai, and his whole entourage were in Egypt because a famine hit Canaan. They lied to Pharaoh. We God didn't tell them to go to Egypt. They, they were trying to do things the best that they can. Everything kind of blew up in their face. And so what it says is they left Egypt and Abram took everyone that was with him, his whole crew, this new tribe that's blossoming in the land of Canaan. He took everyone back to the very first altar that he set up in the land of Canaan. If we go back a few chapters, we remember that uh, when Abram left Haran, which is where Terah is, his father, he started to travel through the land of Canaan and he set up a few different altars where he would worship God. And when his plans to go to Egypt blew up, didn't work out because they weren't actually God's plans, they were his own, and it kind of blew up in his face, he said, okay, Our way of trying to figure things out didn't work out. So let's go back to where God first gave me his mission and his plan and his purpose, where God first called me into relationship with him. Abram demonstrates this attitude of when, look, like they spent months, maybe a couple years, like, okay, we're in Canaan. Now what, God? There's a famine. Now what? God, we're in Egypt, like, right, like there's all these steps that they're taking. And as far as we know, God's not talking to Abram every single day, telling him, okay, here's how your day is going to unfold. Do these steps. Be sure to talk to that person. Turn right instead of left at the green light, right? Like God's not giving him explicit instructions every single day. He's just doing the best that he can with, with the little bit of interaction with God that he has. And he realizes when my ways don't pan out. We got a couple options. I could either just throw up my hands and say, screw it. I'm going back to Ur, right? Because that's where Abram came from. Or he could say, let's try and get back on mission. Let's try and, and get back to what God has for us. And the best way I know how to do that is to go back to where our relationship started, where where we were when he first told me his plans and his purposes, his mission for me. Let's go back to the first altar that I built. So he takes everyone, and we're going to find out later that he has 318 soldier-ready men in his tribe and his crew. So we're going to guess, this is just a guess, he's got at least a 1,000, maybe more people in this growing nomad tribe, because that doesn't include their wives and their children and the elderly, right? So 
this massive group, and that's just Abram's crew, then Lot is also with him. And Moses takes a note to tell us very explicitly, Abram's very, very wealthy. He's got tons of gold, tons of silver, tons of livestock and herds. And instead of building for himself a mansion, a homestead, even really his own city, I live in a town of 700 people, so Abram could very well start his own town. But instead of doing that, he returns to where God called him. Hey, go wander through the land of Canaan because I'm going to give it to you. And instead of making a way for himself, instead of going back into this, okay, I'm just going to keep choosing for myself my, my, my course, what my life has in store for me. I'm going to try and reset, go back, and I'm going to live where God told me to live in the first place. And Abram's in his 80s, okay? What 80-year-old is thinking, I'm really looking forward to having to start all over because I, I kind of went off on a little bit of a tangent and things didn't work out the way that I hoped they would, right? There's no like 80-year-old like eagerly excited to just start over again. How many times is that going to happen, right? Are we going to have to do this over and over and over again? Moses also tells us Lot is exceptionally wealthy and he's got a very large crew. And as they're up north, um, back up in the where Abram first built his first altar, there's other um, tribes and people, Perizzites and Canaanites, are uh, occupying the land who also have lots of livestock and herds. And what we very quickly discover is that Abram, Lot, Perizzites, Canaanites all have so many sheep, flock, and herds that they're like, it's causing conflict between their shepherds. They're bickering, they're fighting, and it's getting so bad that it's actually harming Lot and Abram's relationship. And Abram says, come up here. He takes Lot up to this hill overlooking the whole Jordan Valley, which is uh, basically all of Israel. And he says, look at the Jordan River. It divides the land beautifully. Why don't you pick one side? Either go right or go left, east or west. I'm on the east bank. I'm on the west bank. I'm on the right side. I'm on the left side. It's not that complicated. And he says, you pick whichever one you want for yourself. I'll pick the other. You can have whichever one you want. Lot looks out, sees, oh man, the east side of the Jordan is lush. It's green. It, it, it would be perfect for my, my, my herds and my shepherds. That's the part that I pick. So Lot and Abram separate. And instead of continuing the mission, restarting the mission that God gave Abram's family, which included Lot. Lot says, that mission that God has for you about occupying Canaan and, and all that jazz, that's great, but why don't you just keep that to yourself? I'm going to go back to the city life. And it says that Lot made his way down south on the east side and set up his tent just outside the city limits of Sodom and Gomorrah, the twin sin cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, There's who, who were full of men who sinned against God greatly. And Lot says, look, I, I, I understand the importance and the value of believing in God, following God, being righteous. Yes, that's great. I can get on board with that. But what I can't keep doing is I can't keep starting over every time something that we do just doesn't work out. 
that's just I, I can't do that. So I'm going to I'm going to go establish myself in a safe, secure city that has walls, that has leadership, that has some sort of military protection, that has some sort of provisions. Right. Um, I'm going to go embrace the city life. I'm going to go live in Manhattan. And this is going to cause some conflicts here in just a very little bit. Lot separates from Abram. And it, 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 the scripture says, the Bible says, after Lot separated from Abram, God appears to Abram in a vision. And he, 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 he peels back a few more layers and he says, look at all this land. This isn't like a personal encounter. Maybe he's having a dream or he's in a trance or something. And he sees, God shows him the, the whole land of Canaan. And he's like, this is going to be, this is going to belong to your offspring. Remember, Abram is in his 80s. He still doesn't have any kids. So to any reasonable person, this sounds a little cuckoo banana pants, right? Um, okay, whatever you say, God, I, you know, you're God. I'll, I'll roll with it. We'll go with it. And he says, I'm going to give this land to your offspring. And in your, you just just imagine, your offspring are going to be like dust. It can't, they can't even be counted. It's going to be so many of them, and they're going to cover this land. And Abram comes out of his vision, his trance, whatever it is, and he's feeling a little optimistic. The language here, where it says after Lot separated from Abram, it almost feels like God was awaiting for Lot to make up his mind. Because when Lot goes to the city, we see his true heart, his true intentions um, revealed. You know, he, 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 scripture tells us he was righteous. So he still, he understood the value and the importance of believing in God, fearing God, being righteous. But it's just that mission, that on mission all the time, I'm only going to do what God wants me to do attitude that was just too much for him. And so God was waiting and he said, okay, is he going to do everything I ask of him no matter what? And, and, and he was just waiting, waiting. Lot finally makes up his mind and God says, okay, now I can reveal the next part of the plan. You ever feel like you're just waiting and waiting and waiting and you're like, okay, God, I'm here. I'm in the land of Canaan. I, I think I'm doing what you're, you wanted me to do, but what's next? Uh, this might give us a little bit of an indication that sometimes God might just be waiting for someone else to make up their mind about whether or not they will also do whatever he asks of them. That's just a thought. A little freebie thrown in there. <clears throat> so Abram, feeling optimistic, revived, refreshed. Okay, I've heard from the Lord. It's been a while, but he's re reinstated this mission and this purpose. Okay, we're in Canaan. We're staying in Canaan this time. Uh, let's get to work. And so what it says is what it says he does is he picks up and he moves inward a little bit more to the part of Canaan where he told Lot, I'll take this side. I'll go on the opposite side that you pick. So he honors that. And he, he settles down just outside of a, a town called Hebron. He's not in the town proper because, like I said, he, he, he could be a small town himself. He's a, but he's in the Hebron zip code. And this is where the name Hebrews come from. The, the 
people of God are primarily known as Hebrews, Israelites, and Jews, this is where the name Hebrews comes from. Because Abram had citizenship in Hebron. And if you lived in Hebron, you're called a Hebrew. Great job. And he is settled down in Hebron. While he's establishing himself there, four kings up north decide that they're going to come together and wage war against five kings in the south. Now, when I say kings, when we look at this, we're not talking about like the king of France, right? We're not talking about whole countries here who are collaborating. We're talking about like regions who are under a kingship. Kingdoms weren't as expansive back then, necessarily. Some were, Egypt, Babylon, Sumer, right? Um, But a lot of these um, tribal areas and regions were ruled by kings who had maybe fairly small nation states. And these four kings up north decide that they're going to get together and they're going to wage war against five kings in the south. One of those kings being... Uh, the king that Lot just swore his allegiance to, the king of Sodom. Yeah. So these kings head on down as their their collaborative war effort. They invade in the southern regions. The five kings come up to try and thwart the war plans of these northern nations, but they lose. The north wins. Oh, <laughs> The north wins and conquers the south, defeats the kings, and takes with them back home all of the plunder that they could take from these cities and these kingdoms of the south, including, but not limited to, Lot, his two daughters, and all of his possessions, livestock, and flocks. There's a kid who manages to escape the the battle, Flees, runs up north. I don't know if he's headed like he's looking for Abram. Like maybe he was part of Lot's crew and he knew Abram. Okay, that might that that'd be an interesting like connection there. Or if it's just some random guy who was fleeing and ran into Abram. Let's say it's uh someone from Lot's crew, his gang. Makes it up north, finds Abram, and says, Abram, the kings of the north have taken Lot. And everything that belonged, his whole family, all his possessions, all his livestock, everything. Abram has this really beautiful response. Because Lot has made his bed. And Abram has every right to say, well, that sucks to suck, bro. He made his bed. Lie in it. You chose the city life. Well, that comes with being in the city. You run the risk of being invaded by an army. But Abram's attitude, which is one of, and remember, it's, okay, I tried to do something that I thought was good and right and true. I went to Egypt. I did this. It didn't work out. Let's try again. Abram has this heart that says, we're going to keep trying. We're going to keep trying until we get it just Right. And so God doesn't tell him to go rescue Lot, as far as we know. But Abraham gets the 318 soldier-ready men in his tribe, in his clan, 
to go rescue Lot. Abram realizes, has got to realize, he's about to make a decision on his own that may very well have consequences similar to those in Egypt. But Abram is a man who says, if I make, if I go down this path and it doesn't work out, we're going to go back to where I built that first altar and we'll start over again. And that's okay. So he gets his 318 soldier ready men, tracks down these four northern armies, and at night divides up his very small militia. And it says that he defeated these, these armies that five kingdoms couldn't defeat. Abram's small militia in an effort to rescue this man, that this, his nephew, but this man that he loves, this family that he loves dearly, despite the fact that they put themselves in this situation. Lot put himself in this situation. Abram still loves and longs for his safety, longs for his well-being, and is willing to put his own life on the line to save him. And he does. His 318 men defeat these armies. And this very small militia not only reclaim everything that was stolen from the kingdoms, the five kingdoms of the south, including Lot, his family, his possessions, his heritage, all of that, and everything else that was taken. He also gets the extra plunder from the armies that was left behind, the kings and the the the, the nations that brought with them their own vehicles and horses and and weapons and wealth that's left behind. He 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 acquires even more. And what's so amazing that's not really even like addressed here in the story is that when Abram goes out of his way to save someone who who put themselves in this horrible, god-awful situation where they're probably going to be sold into slavery, abused, mistreated, and in the process, he saved an innumerable multitude of people. Lot wasn't the only one taken captive. They took, they took with them women and children, servants, slaves. They, they carried away, they captured prisoners of war from each of those kingdoms. And Abram, in an effort to save his nephew, saves an immeasurable multitude of families in the process. And, and that'll preach. I won't get it. We won't, but that will. So he saves Lot and he get, acquires for himself all this extra wealth from the nations that he defeated, not taking for himself the wealth and the prosperity and the flocks and livestock of the kingdoms that were just invaded, but the kingdoms that were invading... And he comes back down. Lot, by the way, doesn't learn from his mistake. And he goes back to Sodom. He goes back, reestablishes his business back in Sodom and returns to this place that nearly cost him his life. And later, without giving too much away, I'm gonna, I'm, we're going to spoil it anyway, uh, he risks his life and his family's lives 
all over again by going back to Sodom. But that's in a few chapters. On his way back from this victorious battle, Abram is met by two kings in this land called the Valley of the Kings. And he's the first king that meets him is the king of Sodom, where Lot goes back. And the king of Sodom says, Oh, Abram, great and mighty warrior, keep for yourself all the plunder, all the wealth, all the riches, all the livestock and animals that you saved from Sodom by defeating these armies. You can keep all the plunder. Just give us back our people. And he is declaring this in front of everyone who is has been liberated, that Abram has freed, that everyone has Abram has saved, including Abram's own family, his own clan, his own tribe. Everyone who is going back to Sodom, this king says this. And Abram knows there's something up here. And he says, look, I, I put my hand up, boys, on Scout's honor, on Scout's honor, I swear I will not take any anything that belongs to the kings of the south. They will get everything back that they that was taken from them. Scout's honor. Otherwise, I know that you, king of Sodom, are going to try and tell people you made me wealthy by giving me all this, all these gifts, and I, I that's not going to happen. And this king is publicly shut down, put on blast, and shamed in front of everyone. The second king that comes out to meet Abram is a king by the name of Melchizedek. By the way, please, I always say go read it for yourself. It's especially important for you to read this on your own, but it's also especially really fun to read it on your own because the names of the kings and the towns where they come from are really fun to say, like Keterleomer and um, Guion or something. They're fun. Look them up. Read them. It's fun. And here we meet a king that we haven't met before, and his name is Melchizedek. Everyone say Melchizedek. Yes, or Melchi for short. And this king comes out to meet Abram in celebration of Abram's victory. We haven't met this guy. We don't know who he is. We don't know where he comes from. There are some Jewish scholars that say he is actually Shem, Noah's son, if you remember that. But that's not scriptural. It's not in the Bible. Who knows if that's true or not? The reality is we don't know who this guy is. We don't know where he comes from. But he comes out and he's king of Salem, which is the town of Jerusalem before it was Jerusalem. Melchizedek, righteousness, is king of Salem. Peace. Shalom. Yeah. So this righteous king of peace comes out to meet Abram in his victory. And he says, oh, God has blessed you greatly, Abram. He has given you victory over your enemies. And Abram responds to this greeting by giving the king of Salem this Melchizedek. He was also known as a high priest of Yahweh God. 
Here's someone worshiping Yahweh God, leading a nation of people under the kingship of Yahweh God, and he's nowhere else in the Bible. <laughs> like, this is a very interesting little note that there are people worshiping Yahweh God who aren't necessarily directly addressed in the Bible. That's interesting. But he responds to this king's blessing by giving him 10% of that plunder that he took from those warring armies. No, uh, Abram invents the tithe. If you grew up in the church, I'm sure you've heard it before when they pass the plate. It's time for tithes and offerings. And the idea behind the tithe is that it's 10% you give to God or the church or whatever the context may be that you've practiced this in. You would give 10% of your income or your earnings to God or the church, whatever. And back then, it wasn't always necessarily just money. Like we we think of it maybe in terms of like a paycheck, but they would do it in terms of like your your flocks. You give ten percent of your herd that you you were birthed to you that year. Your new flock, ten percent of it, ten percent of the gold you earned. So some of it is money, but some of it's also crops and harvest and ten percent, whatever it is. Abram invents the tithe by giving ten percent of what he plundered, of what he acquired, to this king. Now, this is before the tithe is a part of God's law for the Levites, for the Levitical priesthood. And scholars, historians will say that whenever a king would make an edict or declare something to be right and true, right, the people in the nation would come and they would donate money or gifts as a sign of, we support this candidate. I am once again asking for your support and, and you know, you put your money where your mouth is. We support this candidate, this politician, this king, because we believe in what he said, his decree. We believe his mission is right, true, good. We fully support it. And this is Abram demonstrating that he believes what Melchizedek said, which is that God is the one who saves. God is the one who gave him victory. And Abram says, yep. That's right, and that's true. And he blesses him. And there's a couple of really, really significant things that happen right here with these two kings, the king of Sodom and the king of Salem. Back in Genesis chapter 12, when God first reveals to Abram what his mission and his purpose, his plan is going to be, he says, I will bless those that honor you, and I will curse those that dishonor you. The king of Sodom is trying to set Abram up so he can dishonor him, so that he can use him as a as his own little like political agenda pawn. And he's trying to manipulate Abram. And this is like the final domino that's set in place. And once that domino is tipped over, it sets in motion a chain of events that ultimately leads to the destruction of that king's kingdom. Because we are going to read about the destruction, the utter annihilation, the total obliteration of Sodom and Gomorrah. And I can't help but wonder 
if this was like the last straw and God honors his commitment to Abram where he says, I'm going to dishonor those who curse you. I'm going to curse those who dishonor you. I'm going to mess them up, the people who mess with you. But he also says, I'm going to honor and bless those who honor and bless you. And Melchizedek, honoring and blessing Abram with this decree that, yes, you are victorious. God has saved you. You have honored God in the way that you've gone to save not just your cousin or your nephew, but a multitude of people. God has brought salvation by your hand. And this is an honor to Abram. And there's a few things that happen here as God fulfills his promise to Abram through Melchizedek by making Salem, which will become Jerusalem, the capital city of the nation of Israel. He also turns Melchizedek into this foreshadow of the type of king and high priest that the Messiah God is going to send will be like. The author of Hebrews in the New Testament, remember Hebrews comes from citizens of Hebron, which is where Abram is, so it's very fitting that Hebrews in the New Testament would include a conversation about Melchizedek. And he says, Jesus, the Messiah, the one who saves, is in the same order of priesthood as Melchizedek. And Melchizedek becomes this archetype this this gleaming example of what it means to walk in righteousness and in a way that honors God and his people and these two chapters 13 and 14 i know it's there's like a lot going on and it's how do we connect and did i miss something and there's so many different things going on but what we see is that there are real consequences when Lot continues to choose for himself, look, I, I know God is right, true, and good. I want to believe in him, and I'll do my best to live righteously, but I just can't follow his mission for me. And there are real ramifications, according to this story, for, for a, a person who continually and repeatedly chooses to walk away from God. And there are real dare I say, blessings and gifts and good things according to the, in, within this story that happen to the person who continually chooses to walk with God and in the mission that he has for him, even if it continually means to start over and over and over. And as he does and wrestles with what it looks like to, to follow God every step of the way, sometimes it includes having to take care of those who walk away, maybe having to snatch them out of the grasp of an enemy, an invading army. But it also means walking in the blessing and according to the gifts and honor of the high priest, Melchizedek. This has been Genesis chapters 13 and 14 as Abram travels from Egypt to Hebron to Sodom to Salem and back again. I have been your host, Jonathan the Dumb Christian. I love you guys. Next time. So there it is, guys. Uh, yeah, Genesis, two chapters, 13 and 14. A lot, a lot, a lot. Um, hopefully I didn't lose you guys. I, I really felt like we needed to cover all of it in one go. 
hopefully it was clear. If it wasn't, if I left something confusing um, or unclear or I said something or left something out, hey, leave a note, let me know. Leave a comment, tell me what you what I missed, what I needed to include, or if I said something that maybe you never thought of before, because I certainly learned quite a few things out of this one. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel, Dumb Christian Podcast. We have exclusive content up there. Uh, be sure to subscribe, hit like, ring that bell. Here comes the butler smashing. I love you guys. Catch you later. Oh, oh.